Good morning, Sycamore View. Uh, so good to be with you this morning. I woke up just with joy. Not just I get to preach to you, but I get to worship with you. Rick Gillespie, thanks for the prayer you let us in as you were praying. I was just overwhelmed by... Rick has been here, and I'm not calling Rick old, but he's been here since the doors of this church opened in 1978. And Rick has worked in children ministry, children's ministry, student ministry, worship ministry, and now for a, uh, a dozen years in Celebrate Recovery. So Rick... Thank you for the many ways you have helped people see Jesus. And there are a number of folks, some who have already gone before us, but many who are in this room who know Jesus better because of you. So thank you. Thank you for your witness. Uh, it's so good to see all of you in person. So grateful for all of you joining us online today. I'm grateful. Is it possible to love God too much? And I would say the answer is no. Is it possible to love people too much? And I would say if we love people in the same way we love God, then the answer is yes. Is it possible to love our country too much? And I would say the answer sometimes is yes. And as I'm in this series called Choreology, and as next year we have a presidential election season, I, there may be some of you who need to hear somebody sometimes say you're, you're loving the country too much, but I... I don't think a lot of people need to hear you, you need to love the country less, is that you need to love people more. And I don't want you to hear, ever from me or from this stage, that you need to love people less, you just need to love God most. So open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews today, that's where we're going to be this morning. The book of Hebrews. There's a story of, uh, after the 2016 presidential election, there were three, uh, <laughs> excuse me, three marriage and family therapists who decided they wanted to do something about the depolarization in our country. So this is post-election, so you have three people whose job is to help people talk to each other. So what they chose to do is to try to find 10 Trump supporters and 10 Clinton supporters and put them together in the same space where they ate a meal and they talked about things. So you get 20-something people in a room, and come to find out, they actually enjoyed being together. They found things that they had in common, and after they found things they had in common, they were able to talk about some of the differences they had. And this started a movement called Better Angels, which to this day, every month, there are dozens of groups who will meet all over the United States in which they're trying to get people politically who are on the right, left, or center in the same room to have a meal to first off find what they have in common and then based on like letting that lay a foundation, then talk about what, the, what differences they may have. It's a novel idea, right? And it's hard for this to happen in our culture. Uh, and it's a great idea. I think we all can get there. Like, let's find what we have in common and then talk about what we have different, uh, wh where we are different, because the alternative is we often go through life thinking about what it is that keeps us separated from people and never finding the common ground to actually build friendships and relationships. There's another group I heard about. They're at a Presbyterian church, not here in Memphis, but here in the United States. And for decades, they've had a Bible class on Sunday mornings called The Wrestlers. And some of you may be thinking, you grew up in church where the Bible class wasn't called The Wrestlers, but that's what happened every Sunday. And maybe you've seen people throw fists or yell at each other in class, but what they do is they come together and they call themselves the wrestlers. And in that space, they think about issues going on in their culture, and then what they do Sunday after Sunday is they study it by looking at the Bible and letting the Bible be the foundation to study the issues. 
And you have people all over the political spectrum who have found this safe haven in this space where they leave that space as friends. And here's why I love this story. Over the last couple of decades, multiple people have come to know Jesus because they were invited to a space where they saw Christians who disagreed about some things in the world but came together in what they believed about Jesus and that they remained friends. And it helped them understand who Jesus was and they became Christians because of it. So we're in this series I've called Choreology, and part of it is I just want to talk about like there, how you navigate culture wars and just culture. And maybe losing your soul is too strong because when I talk about losing a soul, I'm not talking about losing your salvation and needing back in. I'm talking about like just losing your witness. And we see this, right? Especially in presidential election season. So part of this is 2024 will be the sixth presidential election season I have preached through, and it can be really hard for a lot of people. It can be really hard for preachers. So as I'm thinking about next year, I'm just thinking about principles that we find in the life of Jesus that keep us rooted and grounded as we navigate culture wars all around us. I always want to encourage people, live with passion. There are some things we need to be loud about. Live with passion, but be guided by principles that keep us rooted in Jesus. Be passionate in life. Advocate. I've been a board member at Agape for over a dozen, dozen years now, and I chaired the advocacy committee at Agape. I believe in advocating. I believe that there are some things we need to be passionate about. We need to be loud about. Live with passion. Care about things that are going on in the world. But be guided by principles that you see lived out in Jesus. So the last few weeks, I've laid in front of you seven principles that I see rooted in Jesus that can help us as we navigate culture wars and we're living in cancel culture and it's crazy out there in the world. But I believe so much in the church's witness and in your witness of who God has called us to be in the world. That's why I think this matters. And I want to go through just each, all seven of these just real quick. The seven I've laid in front of you, and we have two more weeks of this series, as I laid in front of you that wake up every day confessing Jesus is the Lord of your life and claiming that nothing else is. And as elementary as that sounds, I think this is, there's no Christian I would not encourage to do this every day. To re-up your confession every day. Jesus is the one who talks about deny yourself, take up your cross every day. Daily there should be a re-upping and a confessing. Jesus, you're Lord, and today Satan's going to throw so many things at me, claiming them as salvation for my life or security in life. But Jesus, you're, you're it. You're the only one. There's a principle I've laid in front of you of uh, committing every day to, to spiritual practices that keep you rooted in Christ. Just like mental health and physical health, like if you don't have daily practices and intentionality of keeping you healthy, it doesn't just happen. Like there's, there's work God does and, and we are, we're allowing God and we're giving God space to help form and shape us. I laid in front of you the principle about listening. That we need to become better listeners to God and better listeners to other people. I, I often challenge people, sometimes our prayer lives are 100% us talking and God listening. And you need some time in your prayer life where you're listening to God or you're contemplating on a verse where you're actually giving God some space to speak something into your life. And it's also true in relationships. There are times where Casey says, I need you to listen with your eyes. Because apparently she doesn't think that I can watch ESPN and listen to her at the same time. Like, listen with your eyes. And Jesus is the one who said eight different times you read that Jesus said, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Not once does Jesus say, let those who have a mouth to speak, let them talk. And there's a lot of places in the Bible that talk about using your lips and speaking words. 
Yet James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We need to become better listeners. You cannot cultivate or practice empathy in your life if you don't have a commitment to trying to listen in your life. A few weeks ago, I laid in front of you the principle about resisting forms of media, cable news, social media, at some points in your life. Like, you need to have a discipline where there's a day a week or regularly you are deleting apps or you're staying away from certain things on TV or that you find on your phone so that you can live with God and just discover the joy and peace that comes by resisting a little bit. If not, what happens is you just end up drinking a bunch of Kool-Aid. Am I right? I laid in front of you a couple of weeks ago of uh, we need to be committed to being peacemakers. Not just people who like peace, but people who are committed to creating, building, and making peace. Today I want to talk about hospitality, and I know this is a challenge because I, I don't know what you think about when you think about hospitality. But our hospitality becomes space for us to develop, develop friendships and for us to hear from other people. And then next week, I want to talk about just a commitment to service. Very few things. And many of you, you discover this and you model this. We stay connected to God because of how we see God at work in the world. So today, I want to talk just for a few moments about hospitality. This discipline that keeps us rooted in the heart of God. Because if we don't have principles in our lives, what happens is sometimes we can drift just drift from our center. So in the book of Hebrews, let me walk you through a couple of things real quick. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. Hebrews 2, verse 1. It says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. So we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We know Hebrews was written to Jews. If you read all 13 chapters of Hebrews, you can tell it's written to people who were steeped in Jewish tradition. And some people would argue that uh, the, the author of Hebrews is writing to people in which they're, uh, they're sliding back into Judaism. But if you read it, some would argue that what's happening is people are just kind of drifting from their faith. They're not denying Christ. They're not denying that the church isn't important. They're just kind of drifting, just slowly drifting. And sometimes this happens in life where you can drift from your anchor or drift from your center, but think because you're close enough that you can see it that you're living in a right way with God. And God's not asking for you to just be close to the anchor or close to the center, but for him to be your anchor and be your center. So in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, what, what it said is we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's this anchor. And I hate to footnote the first 12 chapters of Hebrews, because there's some really good stuff in there. Maybe the best stuff about Christ in the entire New Testament outside of the Gospels. I mean, over and over again in, the, in, the, in Hebrews, chapter after chapter, it's talking about the beauty of Christ and Christology and who Jesus is and the sacrifice and what it means for us. But in Hebrews chapter 13, they get to a point where here just for a few verses, what the author does is just here are some things I need you to practice so that it can keep you from drifting and can keep you anchored in God. And here's what he says. Hebrews 13, verse 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. And if you're taking notes in your Bible, I want you to know verse 1, I think, is kind of creating this overarching, like this umbrella that everything else he's about to write comes under that umbrella. Keep loving each other. And now with loving each other in mind, here's what it looks like. In verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So here are just a few things. When it comes to loving each other, here are some ways you need to practice this. And he's writing to people in the life of the church. And the very first thing he talks about, right after saying, keep loving each other, be committed to loving each other. First thing he talks about is show hospitality to strangers. Because by doing so, some have entertained angels some have practiced hospitality without even knowing it. Now, I know uh, one of my challenges today is if you look at the next verse, you see hospitality, and this is a, a two words form the word we read in the New Testament. It's hospitality. It's about friend and stranger. And one of my challenges today is I don't want you hearing me right now saying that I, you just need to go home today and open up your home for a lot of people. I think I'm gonna lose a lot of you if that's the only way you think about hospitality today. Though hopefully there's some challenge to increase the number of people or people that you spend time with around a table eating a meal. We live in a time right now where homes are bigger and bigger and hospitality has shrunk and shrunk. And it's shrunk and shrunk because some people don't even have dining room tables in their home anymore because eating on a TV tray and watching Netflix is so much more fun. And some of our tables, and while we may not practice hospitality, is so full of laundry and papers and taxes that haven't been filed that there would be so much cleaning up to do just to have a few people, even people we love, over for dinner. Maybe we don't like the way the yard works. There's just way too much work. There are times, Casey and I, I mean, we try to practice hospitality. I would have people over every other night of my life and big groups of people. Like, I like to do them big, 8 to 12. Like, just get a bunch of people in the house and let's just, let's just have fun. And there are times I'm like, Casey, tonight, what do you think? Let's have people over. Tomorrow night, what do you think? Let's have people over. And she'll say, Josh, look at the house. It's a mess. In which my response is sometimes something like this. Casey, as a church... How often do we say, come to church just as you are? It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. We all have messes in our lives and we embrace each other for it. Casey, so there is maybe authenticity that people could come into our house and see. This is the way the Rosses do life. We usually have laundry out. We usually have dishes in the sink that maybe haven't been touched in a couple of days. This is who we are and I think people will appreciate that. And Casey's response to me is usually, you know what, sometimes I forget how smart and brilliant you are. I'm just joking. It's it's really that way. All right, but there are a number of reasons we don't practice the discipline of hospitality in our lives. So, don't lose me. Hang on. Because I want to try to expand the imagination, your imagination, of how you think about hospitality, how you think about expanding relationships in your life for the sake of conversations and ultimately for the sake of the kingdom of God. And maybe I can help with an argument by just showing you in the New Testament, I'm not going to show you, this isn't on the screen, but in the New Testament, 70% of the parables Jesus talks about deal with food. 70% of them. The gospel of Luke, Jesus is eating all the time. Sometimes people joke around, like in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus needs P90X like every day of his life, like Weight Watchers or something. Because some people would say in, in Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's leaving a meal. 
constantly with people. And in Luke, Jesus is eating with all kinds of people. Just as 12 apostles alone had a zealot, a tax collector, fishermen, like all these different professions, in his 12 alone, Jesus had somebody who would have been a part of the Portland riots and January 6th, all there at the table. Like these were people who were all over the place. He ate with Pharisees and he ate with sinners. He ate with prostitutes. He ate with the rich and he ate with the poor. Maybe the better question in the Gospel of Luke is who did Jesus not eat with? He ate with everybody. Leonard Sweet wrote a book called From the Tablet to the Table where he talks about hospitality and why we need to be at the table with other people. And one thing he says is an untabled faith is an unstable faith. An untabled faith is often an unstable faith. Think about all the close relationships in your life and probably every single one of them. You can think about food or restaurants or a table that you have sat at with them many times to bring that relationship to what it is today. There's a sociologist and he was writing on the power of the table. Actually, it was research he did on relationships that brought him to the table. And here's what he found in his research, that the number one factor for parents raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, and intelligent frequent family dinners. What he found was the number one shaper of vocabulary in younger children, frequent family dinners. What they found is that the number one predictor of future academic success, frequent family dinners. And that the variable most associated with lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18 year olds, frequent family dinners. And we live in a time where it's, we're busy and sometimes we don't have the time and sitting at a table with those we love the most is difficult. It's hard to think about how it's forming and shaping people. There's a statement that came from a tribe years ago and the statement was, the guest is God. The guest becomes God. And it's a way that they thought about the guests in their home, that how we treat a guest is literally how we are treating God. So in your Bible, in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, it says, here's Paul, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. In 1 Peter 4, 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I want to keep coming back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 today. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And here's this quote from a guy who writes, a couple people who write a lot on uh, the church and the mission of God. And here's what they said. If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around a table once a week to neighbors, we could eat our way into the kingdom of God. All right, and when you see the quote, I want you to kind of, maybe you just need to erase or take out the whole like once a week and strangers, neighbors in your home. Like some of you are like, nope, won't happen. But I want you just to think about the rest of that statement. Being at a table with people forms friendships and relationships and depth that we could eat our way into the kingdom of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. So is this even possible? Because this is hard in, our days, in, the, day we, in the days we live in. Because in many ways, we live in a scary world. Where every day it's like car windows are breaking, like right here in our city, like car windows are breaking or cars are being stolen. And 
I mean, there's some crazy things happening. I mean, some of you probably never thought it would come, the day would come when you would sit in Wolf Chase parking lot for 10 minutes, like praying to God and sending text messages to all your friends and then running in the Wolf Chase, hoping that your car's okay and then coming back to your car. It's hard enough to trust people who we know well, much less trust complete strangers, especially when it comes to inviting them into our home and our table. Uh, <clears throat> All right, so I'm not going to name any names, but I, there, there are multiple people in this worship space today who I do lunches with, or we get together and we eat breakfast or lunch. And I'm not going to name your name like you know who you are, but these are people who, when we eat in restaurants, they have to face as many doors in that restaurant as possible because there may be threats. And I feel like they're doing this out of just a love for me. Like they are, is it deep? Like they, they love and they appreciate and they are protecting their preacher. I never feel more safe than I'm with these people, but I also mess with them a lot. When we get into the restaurant, I try to run to the booth as quickly as I can and get the seat where they come over and they stand by me. And then Patrick, hypothetically speaking, Patrick will be like, yeah. Hey, Josh, he grins and like flippity flip. Like, you know, you got, you know where your seat is or where my seat is. Here's just the reality. Our world has messed up the way we think. And do you see strangers as a gift or do you see strangers as a threat? Like, do you see strangers as a gift from God or do you see strangers as a threat to the world? And don't you hate that our world, our culture has messed us up so bad that we think this, that we wrestle with it? There's a Harvard psychologist who says this, when you start fearing others, your circle of who you counted as friends is going to shrink, and that means those people outside of your bounds get, bounds get less empathy and get fewer resources, which results in this, that there is psychological ease in being surrounded by similar people. And this is why most churches are homogeneous. This is why our network of friends are often made up of people who think like us, live like us, smell like us, so research was done about this a few years ago, and here's what they found. Here's what they found. The social research, what they were doing is thinking about social networks, not social media networks, just social networks of people. Like, who will people sit, and, sit next to or, or trust in conversations for them, at, them to have conversations about life with? And here's what they found. 75% of white people, 100% of their social networks were white people. 65% of black people, 100% of their social network was black people. 50% of Latinos, 100% of their social network was Latino. And they went a little further. What they found was out of 100 friends, and I know some of you are like, I, I don't have 100 friends, but out of 100 friends for white people, 91 of the 100 were white. For black people, 83 of the 100 were black. And if we let this be the way, that we talk and think about culture and life, we will not experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is bringing together people from different, all kinds of difference to come together to find ourselves in Christ. This is it. And I don't know if I'm having any success today in trying to convince you to explore what hospitality can look like in your life, but I'm trying. 
One quote says, our biggest fear may turn out to be our greatest opportunity. And Henry Nouwen says this. He says, our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude, and do hard. But still, that is our vocation, to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. So when I think about this, I think about two people in this church, and I'm not going to name their names. Two people who were separated by a few decades, different races. And I remember there was a conversation on Facebook a few years ago, and it ended up being a heated conversation. And it was one day I actually looked into the comment sections on Facebook. I try to stay out of them. I try to encourage people to stay out of them. Sometimes I believe like comment sections on social media is where Christian witness goes to die. So just be careful in there. And what happened in that conversation is that these two people said, hey, you know what? We're not going to talk about this here in the comment section on Facebook. We're going to go and we're going to have lunch together. And they went and they ate. And they didn't argue each other into their position, but they became friends. And I want to believe there's so much that heaven can do with friendship that allows for there to be some differences, but commonality in Christ. I want to encourage you to expand how you think about hospitality, even though I think being hospitable in our homes is so good. There is a hospitable presence that you have in the world that is needed. Like when you encounter people and people encounter you, there should be a hospitable presence about you, that you are fully present before God and each other. And this takes discipline. This is hard. But you want to know how to do it? go have a conversation with Randy Frederick, who's been a doctor for decades, who I can't imagine every day. The people he can think of, who he's serving, who are sick. Yeah, when you have a conversation with Randy anywhere, you feel like you are the only person in the world who matters. You get his eyes, his full attention, his posture, There's a gift you have in the world, a hospitable presence to others. And when it comes to Hebrews 13, verse 2, and and this whole thing about like entertaining angels, I I don't even know what all to make about that. I know that there are many opportunities in my life. I've missed it, and I can't tell a lot of those stories because I missed it. I didn't realize there was an opportunity in front of me. But every once in a while, when I'm living a life of even walking through parking lots of God, I'm looking for opportunities just to be a light in the world. There are moments all around me. I was at Walgreens a couple of weeks ago, just down the road. I was walking in the Walgreens, and there was an older lady who was putting groceries in her car in the handicapped spot. And they had handicapped tags. It ticks me off when people are in handicapped spots and without handicapped tags. Quit being lazy, right? This woman, she was in the handicapped spot, handicapped tags, and she was old. And when I say old, I'm talking 90, like in her 90s old, not 50s old, like 90s old, all right? She's old. And she was struggling just getting like a, I mean, just a bag with a couple of boxes in her car. And I know strangers in parking lots, it can be, it, it can be a frightening world out there. So I was about 10 feet from her and I said, ma'am, I know I'm a stranger. And I put my hands up. I said, ma'am, I know I'm a stranger, but I can tell you have three 12 packs of Pepsi you're trying to put in your car. Can I help you? She started to cry. 
And I'm, this isn't preacher exaggeration. Like she had tears down her face and she said, why, why would you help me? And don't you love these moments that you step into a moment just to be what you feel like is a kind person. And then a question is asked that gives you the opportunity to say something about Christ, what Jesus has done for you. How can you not help a lady put a few Pepsis in her car? Jesus died on a cross for me, has loved me, has redeemed me. This is the least I could do today. I helped her get all her groceries in her car, closed her trunk, and she said, can I ask a favor? And that's always scary. You don't know where it's going to leave. Can I, ask, can I ask one favor? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, my husband's in the driver's seat, and he's sick and he doesn't have much longer to live, and he feels really lonely and depressed, would you just tell him hi? And I went and just tapped on his window, and when I did, I put my hands up, right? You, you don't want this to be how you go out, right? And he rolled down the window, and I had just a moment with this man. These moments, many of you, you're so good at them, and they are there in front of you every day of your life. One person says this about hospitality. It is the act or process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of the guest. That the primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. And here's the last thing I have for you today. I love this, this quote blows me away. The English word hospitality originates from the same Latin root word as the word hospital. A hospital is literally a home for strangers. Of course, it has come to mean a place of healing. And there is a link between being welcomed and being healed. Our homes are hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven. And our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. And when we lower our defenses, and we remove our facades and our peepholes and we begin to truly present, be present, tr be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. Expand how you think about the table. Expand how you think about hospitality. Think about what it means for your life to be a hospitable presence for those around you. Your presence is needed in this church and your presence is needed in this world. And at communion, this is a hospitable moment. When there's never a morning, there's never a Sunday, there's never a time with the bread and the cup that, that Jesus closes the restaurant or puts chairs on the tables or says today I'm only allowing 10 in the room, his arms are open to invite you to the table. And especially for those of you in this worship space today who eat so many meals alone, right now in this moment is a reminder that there is a meal that you have on Sundays here with this family and that represents a Messianic banquet that will be there with you forever where you are never alone. The reason we're moving the tables and we have prayer leaders in this space right now is because we believe that in this moment with the bread and the cup, there is healing that happens. And in the next couple of minutes, this may be like an operating table. It may be God revealing things in your life that need to be transformed. This is a time for us all to step to Jesus, united as a church on a mission for God.
So this morning, Kim and Laura, will, one of you, if you don't mind, coming to this side and one will be on that side. Reggie Lee, one of our shepherds, will be up here to my right. I'll be over here on the left. And I know we'll have one shepherd in the back to receive you. Let's move to the bread and the cup today with gratitude for how, how hospitable Jesus is. And if there's anyone here who needs to take a step to Christ, knowing what it means to confess Jesus as Lord of your life or to be baptized into Christ, will you come find me or find one of these people standing around this morning? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and let's pray. For Jesus, we give you thanks. For every table you sat at, for every table that you, uh, that you invited people to and the healing that came from it and the truth you spoke from it, and now today, as busy as you are doing things all over the world, you are fully present in this moment. Open up our hands and our hearts to receive more of you. And through the bread and the cup today, God, give us an imagination and the courage to be an, an hospitable presence in the world this week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and the whole church said, amen.